Come back with me to 2007. It's a, it's a few months before I'll leave theological college in, in Cambridge. And you're about to listen in to, to part of a conversation between me and a fellow student as we walk with our New Testament tutor who's just delivered a lecture on this particular passage that you heard read for us. If you like one of the privileges of, of, of being in Cambridge and learning in one of the finest institutions in the world is that you're surrounded by so much history. So much beauty that you're almost invited to participate in and enjoy. So imagine the scene which is the backdrop to this conversation. We're going to walk along a path that's known as the Backs. If you've ever been to Cambridge, you may have walked along the Backs. It's that famous path that goes next to the river where some of the most famous colleges in the University of Cambridge, they're back onto the River Cam and their grounds spread both sides of the river. You can breathe in the beauty, the green lung of mature trees and parkland that follows this gently meandering river. You can smell the history radiating from some of the finest architecture in the world. And now listening to part of the conversation, most of which has has kind of left my memory until my tutor said these words. When, when you get to your churches, never stop telling them about the relevancy of the message of Romans 3, 21 to 26. In other words, when, when you get there, never stop. Keep trying to find ways to explain in new ways the, the relevancy of the message of Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Why did he say that? Over the years, I'm not sure I've succeeded, but why did he say it? Because the reason he said it is because many great New Testament scholars see the passage that was just read from Romans 3. It's not, if you like, the, the central part of the, the book of Romans, but actually the most central part in the Bible if you like, the most important paragraph that's ever been written. We may live in a world where many would doubt that. But what, the reason why it's so important is because it answers the question, how can we be made right with God? Or in other words, if you like, what has God done that's so great that kind of restores the relationship to him through Jesus' death on the cross? Now, you and I may know people that, that for them it's just a question that's not on their radar, either through ignorance or indifference. You will know people like I do who are almost hostile to it. But just because a question is out of fashion, doesn't mean it's not relevant. Following Jesus, Paul would say that our eternal destiny depends upon it. And in today's read Bible reading, what we encounter is what I think is the most remarkable word in the Bible. One that's at the heart of the gospel. Grace. You know, grace is a word, isn't it, we use in so many different contexts. A girl's name. A title. A prayer we say before meals. 
But what does grace mean biblically? Maybe you, you might have grown up hearing this, like I did, that, that, that you explain grace through an acronym, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe, like me, you've heard grace defined in terms of its relationship to justice and mercy. That if justice, if you like, is when we get what we deserve, and mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, grace is what, when we get what we don't deserve. But I'm not sure that encapsulates truly the meaning of grace. Why? Because in the, in the New Testament, grace is so big that it's, it's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? You know, if you, if you went home from here and you did a, did a Bible study on the word grace, and you kind of looked at all the things that it's talked about, it'd be vast. I mean, just look at today's reading. We talk here of grace bringing redemption. Grace bringing freedom. Justification, righteousness, atonement. You can go further. Grace brings forgiveness, sanctification. Grace brings blessing. Grace brings forgiveness. Grace brings being seated and raised with Christ. It's grace, isn't it? That is probably the most famous hymn in the world that transforms the wretch of a slave trader to switch sides, to become a man of God and fight against slavery. It's grace that enables a parent who's had the most despicable crime committed against them. Forgive. It's grace that understands who am I? That the highest king welcomes me as a precious daughter or treasured son. It's grace that actually tells us why all religions can't be the same. And it's grace for which this world actually deeply thirsts. Remember where we are in the book of Romans. Last week in week two, we kind of started to explore the central theme, if you like, of Paul's message that we summarized in week one. And he called this message a gospel, which means good news. And we started to look, didn't we? And we started to look at, well, if there's good news, there's also bad news. And if you were here last week, we kind of had to go through the, the valley of sin. All 64 verses from verse 18 of chapter 1 through to verse 20 of chapter 3, where Paul explains the bad news. And you may remember how I said the best way that I've ever heard the gospel message being explained in terms of the bad news and the good news is this, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. That's the bad news but more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared imagine. That's the good news. And kind of in verse 21 of chapter 3, there's this turn the corner moment when Paul says, but now. But now is the way in which the gospel message pivots from we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe to more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And he starts talking about this whole idea of how we are justified by grace through faith. So here's, if you like, my definition this morning of what grace means. And we're going to look at it in, in three parts. Here's the first part, that grace is God's free gift. It's God's grace. 
It, if you like, originates from him. And it's given to all, irrespective of status, irrespective of who we are. Now imagine if you're, if you're someone in the church in Rome and you're hearing this for the, for the first time. And remember, you're a slave. You know, quite simply, in, 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 in Roman times, you knew where you stood in society by the dress code, by the clothes that you wear. And now you hear that it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter whatever people think of you or however you're judged. You are accepted for who you are. And it's free. But free doesn't mean it's not costly. For grace is God's free gift, but it's God's free gift of unconditional love through Jesus' death on the cross. And to explain what Paul means now, he uses three everyday examples. He uses three everyday examples that everyone in first century Roman life would have been familiar with. One comes from the slave market, one comes from the temples, and the third comes from the law courts. Each, people, each of them would have known each of these different scenarios. And what he tries to do is, through mainly Old Testament metaphors, is he tries to explain what Jesus' death on the cross achieves, what it accomplishes through each of these three everyday scenarios. We'll only look at, at one of them this morning. But if you look in verse 24, it says, we are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What are they thinking as they hear this? What are they thinking as they hear this word, redemption, through Christ Jesus? Maybe some of them are thinking, well, they're remembering the Exodus story. They're remembering how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to the promised land through the Passover lamb. Maybe they're remembering that, but also remember how many of them were actually slaves. Many of them knew what it was like to be, if you like, bought and sold in the slave market. So imagine how, how they feel. Imagine how they feel when all of a sudden this here, that Paul describing grace in terms of saying that Jesus' death on the cross, what it achieved. That God has, if you like, stepped in to redeem them. Redeem them from the slavery of sin. To be a child of God. No more owned by somebody else. No more else is somebody's possession, but a person. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember that moment when you, when you heard for the first time that? Do you remember it? Do you remember the time when you suddenly understood how trapped and powerless you were to, to sin and its ability to just chain you up? And you found out how... God stepped in through Jesus' death on the cross and he just redeemed you. How, as Jesus said himself, that the Son of Man came 
to pay the ransom for all. And that he liberates you not only from the reign of sin, but so that we could be someone different, to live with purpose and dignity. That's grace, if you like, through redemption. He'll go on to talk about grace through the temple sacrifice. He'll go on to talk about grace through the law courts, of how he, he justifies us, of how he sees us quite literally as if, just as if I'd never sinned. No longer seeing our guilt or failure just being wiped out. You see, when we understand how grace redeems, how it atones, how it justifies, we begin to see the significance of, of grace. It's why grace says there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more and nothing we can do to make God love us any less. If you want an example, think of the thief on the cross when Jesus died. It's why, as C.S. Lewis said, in a world that will tell you that, oh, well, all the religions are all the same, it's why grace and God's free gift of love of unconditional love in Jesus' death on the cross tells you why that cannot be true. Because it's grace that marks Christianity out from the Buddhist Eightfold Path or the Muslim Law Court of Approval, even the Jewish Torah or the Hindu doctrine of karma. Only Christianity dares to make God's unconditional act of salvation entirely as a gift. It's the significance of grace that grace is God's free gift, that it's God's free gift of unconditional love through Jesus' death on the cross. And here's the third bit about what grace does. Grace transforms. It transforms sinners into saints. You see, there's a power to grace, isn't there? That the power of grace is that when you meet the God of love and holiness, the more you spend in his presence, the more his grace starts to radiate from your life. You see, it's his, it's his grace that actually transforms our life. Yes, in the first instance, but it's his grace that keeps on transforming our life. And if you like, it's that final part of the definition that maybe for many of us this morning might be most helpful that it just transforms, just changes, just changes us. And the way that Paul tries to do this, he, he goes and takes one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of Abraham. And he, and he shows how through, through Abraham's life that the reason that Abraham moved from this nomadic wanderer to become the father of, of many nations, if you like, wasn't because of something Abraham did, but it was all because of what God did. And through chapter 4, what he does is he, he explains the story of Abraham. And he just says, listen, Abraham wasn't made right with God because of what he did. He wasn't made right with God because, as, as like, as like the, the Jews thought, because he was circumcised. He wasn't made right with God because he was a good, obedient follower of the law. The reason Abraham, if you like, received the blessing of God to be the father of, of many nations was because of God's grace, simply as a gift. And in describing Abraham's life, if you were to go away from here 
and take out three pence. And you were to start reading chapter four just on a piece of paper and you read it a few times, you'd all of a sudden, you'd see three words used repeatedly of Abraham that perhaps help us how to apply this message to our lives. It's summed up most helpfully in verse three when it says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham, we read in that story, we read 17 times of Abraham's faith. They'll use the word faith, they'll use the word believed, they'll use the word trust. It all means the same thing. We receive God's grace through faith. Faith is the way in. Then the second term is this term reckoned or credited or counted. It's said of Abraham 11 times in this, in this chapter. Lots of you are clever, good financial people, so you'll probably maybe get this. The idea that it's an accounting term. It means to put on deposit, but not like your monthly salary or whatever that comes in every month, but as a gift. And it's this idea that grace is just the gift. The gift that we need not just once, but repeatedly through our lives, because that's how we change. Because grace is transformational. Deeper experiences of his grace to enable us to forgive that person who really irritates us. Or to be able to not say those words that we really want to say and to say kind words. That's grace. And then thirdly, the third word is the word righteousness or being just. It's used 11 times of Abraham in this chapter. It's the word we met in week one, dikaios. In this context, it means that you have right standing with God. In other words, that you are clean before God. In other words, declared innocent, a friend. But then, from that position, you then go and live out a righteous life, knowing that you have received the righteousness of God. All through faith. In other words, faith is the way in, and it's the way on. And so that's grace. God's free gift of love through Jesus' death on the cross that transforms each of us from sinners into saints. So let us be those people shaped by the cross, shaped by faith, always remembering that it's a gift that we have received and let grace keep on transforming us in righteousness. Shall we pray together?